0: This podcast was recorded on January 23rd, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as of the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes.
1: Okay, welcome to the Sherman Show. I'm here with my co host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And today we are coming once again live from Chicago. We have none other than Terry Savage with us today. Welcome, Terry.
2: So happy to be sitting here with you.
1: Yes, and those of you who don't know Terry, uh, she is a nationally recognized expert on personal finance, uh, the economy, markets. Uh, she writes weekly personal finance columns. And she's syndicated by major newspapers, and she's a Chicagoan. Is that the right way to say that? I sure am. Yeah, and um, someone that's a champion of of, um, the business community here in Chicago. So welcome to the show, Terry. Thank
2: you. Delighted to be here. And by the way, Sam, if you say hey-hey in Chicago, they might confuse you with Jack Rickhouse. So, yeah, that's a legendary, yeah. it's your signature now, he's long gone now. Yeah, go. gone, yeah
1: so <laughs> I thought he made it up all along, so Sam, Sam's been plagiarizing all these years. You know? I bet hey, you didn't hey. even yeah. know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so um, we're doing this on our YouTube channel again, um, it's on youtube.com backslash Double Line capital. If you want to see Terry's smiling face, uh, we'll keep the camera focused on her most of the time, so we have to look at Sam and I. So let's get started here, Terry. Um, You have a very interesting background. You have a lot of accomplishments as a a female in finance. So maybe you could start off telling us a little bit how you got into the investment world. Um, Tell us a story about sitting on the CME and what led you kind of down the path that you're on today.
2: Well, uh, it's a long story because I've been around for a long time, but um, it started way back. I was on my way to graduate school. I'd won a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, and I needed a part-time job to make extra money. Before I went, I answered an ad. I remember the the wording, secretary, light typing, no shorthand, prestige LaSalle Street brokerage firm. And uh, I got the job. They didn't have too many uh, college grads being their secretaries. And I was so fascinated with the markets, I just I said, Wait a minute, I really want to be a broker. And they said, Well we don't train girls to give you an idea how long ago that was. Uh, but you could take the correspondence course and if you pass the test you could be a registered secretary. Well I did do that. I went running around the office asking the trading department and the Muni Bond department, could you explain this to me? I had a really good education. And when I did pass the test They took a shot and gave me a seat. One guy, John Buckingham Elliott, the Buckingham Fountain in Chicago, Mm -hmm. very successful broker. I had been his assistant, and he he said, "No, well, let's make her a broker."
1: How how long did that take?
2: That was pretty quick. Um, I just I never did go on to get the Woodrow Wilson, um, but I did use it in economics, which is where I was going to Berkeley. By the way, I'd been accepted, but. I was fascinated, and and Mr. Elliott, I called him then, would be buying a thousand shares of XYZ stock, and I'd call these people and say, Mr. Elliott's buying a lot of this stock, and here's what the earnings are going to be, and they're going to double next year. But I really got into it, and when the Chicago Board Options Exchange opened back in 1973, I decided I wanted to buy a seat and that was the next. We don't hire. We don't have girls do this. Only I, by then, I was. So you
1: started the CME, right? No, no. And, uh, I started at a brokerage firm. At oh, the brokerage firm. Uh, you, okay. You, okay. Nobody
2: sorry. out in this audience is old enough to remember Glore and William R. Stotz. It merged with Dupont. Okay. In the days of Ross Perot at the beginning, and um, when I applied to be a member of the CBOE, I was about six, seven months pregnant. I remember the Board of Trade started the CBOE. And it was in the lunchroom, the trading floor was in the old lunchroom of the Board of Trade. And the interview process took place in this smoke-filled room, dark, I remember it distinctly. And I remember sitting there like this at the table, you know, sort of hiding. And one of them said, you know, you have to be on the trading floor. And that was it. I said, look, this is a temporary condition. I'll be down there in a few months. Right. And I was on opening day, which was April 23rd. 1973. But they I was the only one with a seat. They pulled a stool in the corner because they didn't know how the trading floor would erupt. And they said, you sit there in that seat and don't get out in the crowd. <laughs> that was the beginning.
1: So you started on the CBOE. What were you trading?
2: Um, I was trading Northwest Airlines. Uh, they put me in a very NWA. calm spot. NWA yeah, was yeah. my stock. And uh, once someone said, I was a trader, not a floor broker. But once someone said, we give you an order to execute in the IBM pit. That was the you know, Think about 1973. That was the era of the fabulous 50. That was the one-decision stocks. They called them the Vestal Virgins. They can only go up. And by the time the market dropped to 570.01 intraday, There had been a tremendous crash. I watched stocks go from, oh, McDonald's was 118. It went down to the low 20s. Avon was over 140. They let me trade there because it was a girl stock, you know, Avon. (laughs) It was down in the teens. And I looked up at this old guy, and I knew he was old. His name was Paul, and he had a fringe of gray hair. There were mostly young people there. And I looked at him, and I said, wait a minute, Paul. They all went down. Where did all the money go? And I'll never forget, he looked down at me, and he said, well, my dear, it went to money heaven. <laughs> and seventy three seventy four was a really great lesson in bear markets. I've been mm-hmm. through a few since then. So it, I learned very quickly that I wasn't cut out to be a, a trader. I would buy 10 of these and that maybe I should hedge that. I'll go short seven of those. And pretty soon I had huge fully hedged positions. I'm a much better long-term investor and that's what I've done over the years very successfully.
1: So let's talk about that. So you started in the pits. You started out there. I did.
2: I I started wanting to wear my best clothes because, you know. And uh, then you'd get pen marks. And they smoked on the floor in those days. So you could get burned. I quickly took on one of those jackets.
1: (laughs) So you started in the pits. Um, you said that you didn't think of yourself as a good trader. You got a little too head. You hedged your position a little too much. Yeah. Um, so, what was the transition? What? What were you? When did uh, you decide that? How did? You, how did you stumble across that? And then, what made you kind of transition into a new life?
2: Okay. So, the board of trade on the grub. The board trading floor was on the fourth floor, and then the top was a little black and white TV station. It had just gone color, yeah. uh, with the stock market ticker tape, and they used to invite me up, and to answer questions because it was so unique to see a girl then. The markets were so slow after that, 75, 76. They said, how'd you like to take an hour and interview anybody you want? And they called it Terry's time. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to interview everybody. I remember um, uh, when index funds came out or the concept, I remember asking Rex Singfeld then in Chicago, why would anybody want to only be average? You know, I I asked everything. We did a course on options and recommended they go to the big bookstore in town to buy the book, and the bookstore called, you know, they had branches all over saying, how many people are taking your course? We've sold out of hundreds of Gilers Point and figure, it was charting, That's point right, and figure yeah. point charting and figure charts, book. Point yeah. Exactly. So I did that for a while. I also had a seat on the Merck, on the IMM. I took a tape from this little TV show and went to NBC. Uh, this was in about 78, 79, and I said you know, you're not saying anything about investments in the markets and we're having inflation. And they said, let's put her on, she's a girl. And then just the day before I was to start, they said, wait, somebody from CBS in New York called and said, how can you know that she knows anything? They said, give us some references. Here's a name you'll know. I, I said, call Leo Malamed at the Merck. He must have given me such a glow. He was then chairman of the Merck. Mm-hmm. He gave me a glowing reference and there I was on TV every day. Now, here's a sophisticated one for all of you out there who don't want to listen to the ancient times. But back in 1980, 81, interest rates changed by the Treasury bill auction. The only way you could get more than five and a quarter percent on a CD in a savings and loan was a six-month CD based on the six-month Treasury bill auction rate, okay. and it changed every Tuesday. The rate was at the set at the auction on Monday. So this is how old how things fast things have changed in my lifetime. They auctioned them on Monday at 12:30, but the Treasury couldn't get its adding machines literally together to figure out the average institutional bid and didn't release that information on the new rate till after six o'clock, by which time the banks were closed. Close. <laughs> true, true story. At the CME that was in the IMM, I was trading in the treasury bill pit figuring, I understand interest rates at least, that it wasn't gonna go in the hog pit. And at noon, I knew what the treasury rate was gonna be. If it was up a quarter point from last week or down a quarter point or up a half a point because rates were moving now up to nine, 10, 11%. I asked the noon TV show, there's a noon show in every town, could I be the last story on the noon news I'll just do this little thing. They said, oh, okay. I'd call the floor, I had a friend there, and I'd say, "What's the auction look like? They'd say, 9.27%. I'd go, oh my gosh, last week was 8.98. I'd get on TV and say, if your CD is maturing today, today, renew tomorrow, don't renew today. Wait till tomorrow to renew. The rates will be a quarter of a point higher. Mm -hmm. And people thought it was brilliant. I got a call. This is fire engine company. We were out on a run. What did you say interest rates were going to do tomorrow? That was the start of it. But that's how our world has changed. Instant communication of everything. When you could pass post, as they used to say in the old racing game, the markets for 24 hours, as I did then, Yeah, So,
1: so you started, you went from the pits, you're trading, now you're starting to become a media influence. Um, how has that changed over the years since you, when, when you started back in the '80s, and you're talking about interest rates too? But now you see the financial journalism. H- how has that kind of morphed over time, outside of the instantaneous communication and the, and the yeah. 24-hour news cycle? Well,
2: but that's it. There is so much that's instantaneous. There's, um, I was such a, I was such an oddity in those days, and I didn't mind saying to people, "Men, but worse." I said, no, I think the prime rate's going to 15%. And they thought I was just outrageous. Well, you know, it went to 21% Mm -hmm. under Volcker. So I knew the markets. And I could communicate. That was unique then. Now it's ubiquitous Mm -hmm. everywhere. So that's good. That's good for people because don't forget, we no longer live in an era of fixed interest rates. People got a mortgage. It was fixed for 30 years. They didn't know anything about adjustable mortgages. They all had pensions. Mm -hmm. So they didn't have to worry about investing. Only rich people bought stocks. Um, In my lifetime, even the markets, I mean, I remember May Day, celebrating May Day when commissions were unfixed For big institutional orders, I thought, oh my God, all the institutional brokers on the next floor up are going to go broke. They were (laughs) going to negotiate the commissions. Right. You know, so, and then the move to penny increments instead of steenies, you know, which we said on the floor.
1: Right. So when you see that and you look at the evolution of it, what what made you really want to reach out on the personal finance level? So you're talking about pit trading, institutional. You're talking about going out in the media and trying to explain what you're seeing out there. You're trying to educate the masses, really, and give insight. What what is the transition to personal finance?
2: Well, I've never thought I could call the market, but I knew everybody who ever did along the way. I knew Joe Granville, I knew Bob Prechter, you know, I, uh, uh, I knew all the market gurus as they came along mm-hmm. because they would talk to me. And I realized that there was just a, gr- I found my passion. My passion is not beating the market. I understood Rex felt being the market. And mm-hmm. I think Jeffrey is the only one who's made me waver, I know Bob Schiller. Um, with the idea that you could consistently, quote, beat the market. But do you realize that for the vast majority of people who are defaulted into a 401k plan, if they would only know that they should not only continue investing, even when the market goes down, Mm -hmm. and just being the market over the long run, we've never had a 20 year period where you lost money in that diversified portfolio S&P 500 fund with dividends reinvested. Mm -hmm. I mean, even adjusted for inflation. So you pick the period 29 to 49, 52 to 72. So people have to be aware. And I just found my passion explaining not only the markets, which I knew pretty well, Mm -hmm. but everything from insurance, uh, mortgages, saving for college, all those other topics. So I think
1: that's very important. We spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about markets. We spend a lot of time with economists, and we're trying to dissect where the economy is going. But uh, I think you brought up a very good point there on personal finance. It's not just the investing leg. So talk about the importance of the insurance, of – you know, getting the right mortgage, saving for college, the 529 plans. How important is that for people? I think a lot of people say, well, I don't understand the market. I don't want to invest. But exactly. it's, it's goals-based investing, right? I think exactly. that's kind of what you, you preach and in, in through your book as well.
2: Exactly. I'm not trying to turn people into market beaters. And mm-hmm. if they want to sit in watch, I mean, the whole world. I When I introduced Jeffrey Gunlock yesterday at the big executive club, Economic yeah. Forecast, yeah. by the way, he was – a spectacular hit. Mm -hmm. We do this every year, I'm seated for for 40 years. This was my anniversary. He was by far just the most outstanding uh, panelist we've ever had. He just gave a great assessment of the markets. But I'm not trying to turn people into Jeffrey or you guys. Now most of the people you're out there watching or listening are really hanging on every nuance that I've listened to your podcast. This is the ordinary part of America who is forced to make financial decisions or face the consequences. The first one, how did I get buried in debt? Hmm. The second one was, well, I mean, what's this 401k, or I don't have one, so I can't invest. Come on, IRAs. This is my audience. And while some of you may say, oh, I think I'll turn this off, it's gonna to be too basic. Let me tell you, that what you do around your investments, as sophisticated as you are, as much as you beat the market, is equally important. Whether it's you and your family, because I know this is a sophisticated audience, but let me ask you a question. Is your younger brother or sister that smart? Or are they the ones that are in debt? What about your parents? Do you know if they're organized, if they have a revocable living trust? Did they buy long-term care insurance? Wait, when your kid goes off to college, which you made enough money in the market to put aside and pay for, are you gonna have mom or your mother-in-law move into junior's room because she can't afford a nursing home? All these personal finance questions are not just for all the smart money that I know that listens to this, but the people around you, you're in that boat. And by the way, a lot of people might not be your relatives, but they're out there today going, you rich people investing in the market, we, we don't like you. <laughs> they're the people in debt. They're in that same boat that we're all in. And if they start rocking the boat, then the whole system goes down. But I've been around, as I said, a long time. So I'm talking to everybody and trying to bring everybody along to make just sensible financial decisions. You pick a topic, I'll talk about it.
1: All right. Well, let's start there. What is probably the biggest challenge you see when talking to people? Uh, you talk about indebtedness or not uh, having the not having a long term plan. I mean, long term health care. I mean, that, that's a very important thing, especially with health care inflation at the rate it's going. So what do you see as being some of the biggest challenges out there when you're talking to people that they're they're overwhelmed with a certain burden?
2: Okay, look what my I write the syndicated column, I'm on TV here all the time and so forth, but I really go out to corporations and businesses and do financial planning programs based on their 401k plan. Mm-hmm. They like that, they want people to invest. They want them to appreciate the benefit of the match. So let's just start with number one. The first hurdle is getting people out of debt. In 2008, everybody said, I will never go in debt again, and credit card debt has climbed past those levels. We've had a boom time. People are buried in debt. There will be a recession. I don't time the markets or the economy, okay. but there'll be one. People will lose jobs and overtime and things like that. So. I mean, i got to get people out of debt. I, I can't help them go forward if I can't get them even first. Okay. So, I, you know, I talk about the simple formula. Let me just you pass this on to some of the people that you meet.
1: You're here. To you're get here. Out, like, like, well, like we have okay, cameras. We've so got, it's we're, not we're, you yeah.
2: that are waiting for Jeffrey and Sam to give sophisticated market stuff, but maybe it's your kids who are starting out or someone you know. Your secretary. Um, if you still have a secretary, Um, if you have a credit card balance and pay only the minimum monthly payments, it could take you as long as 30 years to pay off that balance. That's why you buy financial stocks. They're getting rich on all this interest.
1: Sounds like a mortgage to me, right? Well, no, it's worse than a mortgage. And this is worse because
2: you pay four times the interest, the amount you charged in interest. Watch the simple formula. Take your credit card bill, look at the minimum monthly payment. Is it $120? Double it, $240. Write that number down, put it on a Post-It note on your computer. I know you're paying your bills online. Pay that same amount every month. Not double next month's minimum, but double this month's minimum every single month. Don't charge another penny. And instead of paying this off in 25, 30 years, it'll be paid off in less than three years. There is a way Mm -hmm. out of debt. Mm -hmm. So that's number one. A lot of people in America, well, you know that you've seen these stories of if they had a $400 emergency expense, they wouldn't know where to go. Um, Part of that is people are buried in debt. The second thing is to start saving automatically. I have a concept that I call chicken money. Yes. It's money you cannot afford to lose. And nobody should be embarrassed. I have chicken money set aside. I'm sorry. It's in T-bill. Okay. (laughs) But it lets me sleep at night and go on TV when the markets are crashing and saying, "If you're young, just keep investing. If you're older, right now, I've been telling people, set some s- chicken money aside. You're going to retire. You're going to have to take out RMDs. Have some liquidity so you're not forced to sell in the so, midst of so a crash." So,
1: when you talk about this chicken money, and and I I have chicken money. I'm with you. I, I right, thought that okay. was a great. That's it's a great not, don't I mean, because like, there's nothing wrong with it. It's like <clears> if you need cash, you never know when you need it. But what? How do people think about? How much should their chicken money be? You know, is it a percentage of, of income? Um, is it something about expenses? Where you're doing? How, how do you think you about know, that formula? Like that? People
2: always ask for rules, but I think you know intuitively if you start thinking about it. Mm. There's an old. You know, my book is the Savage Truth on Money, so I have all these Savage Truths. But it's really mm. an old Wall Street saying. It's called Sell down to the sleeping point. If it's keeping you away at night, awake yeah. at night, yeah. sell. Sell, sell part of it. No, you don't have to sell all of it, sell part of it. If you're, if you're younger, you just need a few months rent and living mm-hmm. expenses in case you lose your job. Right. If you're uh, kids in college and you've put money in investments and college starts next year, hey, you don't have to be a hero for the next 3,000 points in the market. Have at least the first two years of tuition set aside. And I know it's horrible, money market funds, treasury bills, but something like that. So you hey, have at least liquidity. they're
1: positive in this country, right? Yeah, Still. Ex- exactly. Still, right? Exactly.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Paula says they will always yeah. be. Yeah. Right.
1: Well, um, as long as he's yeah. around. Yeah. Well, yeah. Let, let me give you a story before you interject yeah. there, because I, I think that's a very important point that you talk about, about what, what allows you to sleep at yeah. night. And uh, I recall I was at a conference with Professor Schiller. We were hosting something in Tokyo. And there was a gentleman that came up to me asking me all about cryptocurrencies. This was about two and a half years ago, three years ago. And this is when cryptos had had peaked and tanked. And he just kept peppering me with questions. And I said, eventually, I just said, look, I don't know all these different cryptocurrencies. I, I don't know. Uh, how much you should own. I, I don't really understand completely all of it. You know, and we've been better educated since then. However, what I said as I, it, he kept coming back and like rotates and it's like cocktail hour and he kept coming back. Well, what about this one? And what about that one? And I said, the one thing I know is you own too much. And he said, how do you know how much? I said, the amount of questions you've asked me and the exactly. insecurity you have with that position, you're too long, right? Exactly. So I said, whatever you have, you probably own too much. As so I know nothing about you, you just keep coming back to me and asking these question. But I think it's very important. It's that. What's your comfort level? Can you sleep with it? And can can you do that? So I think that's just great advice to anyone out there. Is that if you're constantly checking the balance, if you're constantly looking at the position, you're constantly fretting about it, you own too much. You need more exactly. of the chicken money.
2: And yeah. L- yeah. Exactly. Listen right. to yourself, and don't be embarrassed. Right. And my son's in the markets. He's and, and I know in '99 when I was I was I'm always early to to realize because wait I lived through '73. Yeah. You know I lived through '82. We had a, a, a Quite it was a, thing. a double dip, uh, right? 18, yeah, right. Nine, you know, in 1987, I was right there with a camera on the trading floor. I'd already gotten off the floor. I've seen, you know, the average bear market takes away 33 percent. Gets you takes four and a half years to get even. Most people don't get even because they sell out at the bottom. So, I, you know, I have perspective. So, it's don't be embarrassed to say, yeah, I've set some money aside. You don't have to tell anybody. Just do it. You'll feel better. Yeah.
3: Well, I wanted to take a step back because you were talking about um, advice on how to pay down debt once you've accumulated mm-hmm. it. But if we were to take a step back, what type of advice would you have to help people from incurring debt or massive amounts of debt in okay. terms of their spending?
2: Okay, this is the most difficult thing. Um, it's it's the first step and it's the hardest step. It's probably like AA a kind of a program. First of all, take your credit cards out of your wallet. I never say cut them up. You need to demonstrate a credit history. First of all, Go get your credit score. Credit Karma, Discover, probably your bank gives you a credit score. Do this for your kids. I know you know your credit score. You're all smart people listening. But get your kids accustomed to checking their credit score. And then you need a length of credit history. So sure, you want to get your kids started on good credit. One card ought to do it. You can't make a hotel reservation or rent a car without it. But then use your debit card for everything else. I know you won't rack up miles. If you have, I think people are born with a genetic thing called they're either savers or they're spenders inherently. I've said that a long long time and I used to get a laugh when I'd say, you know, if a, two two spenders marry each other, you, you know, you've, I'll give you the number for consumer credit counseling. Two <laughs> savers are the ones that are sitting there drinking the glass of wine overlooking their vineyard in retirement. And if you one of each mar- they marry each other, you're setting up a lot of arguments about money. But watch this. I have twin granddaughters now. They are going to be 10 years old. So we know about them. And their mother, but this is my son's children, their mother said to me, oh my, I guess I can name their names because they're not gonna listen to your podcast. Alison is so you, she is such a saver. You send her to the store and she'll buy one little thing and come back and keep the change and put it in her piggy bank. Lucy is such a flippity digit. She's gonna be in financial trouble all her life. Two kids, same genes, same household, same upbringing, finance, mm-hmm. you know, my son's mm-hmm. sophisticated different money personalities. So to, to answer your question, you have to discipline yourself. And the easiest ways to do it are, number one, use your debit card. And then you can't spend more money that's, than you have in the bank. Number two, have an automatic savings program set up where you sign up. Open a Roth IRA. If your kids are working over the summer or just started out, they only have to have earned the money. You, they don't have to have kept it, you put in an IRA for them, put it in the fund, let them see and get them in the habit of, of saving and then set up an automatic deduction for a monthly contribution to a Roth IRA, get it out of their hands. Those are the kinds of things I don't think it's so easy to do. But I right. know and that if you make it now. automatic, it but works. But almost
1: anymore now, any job, too, has direct deposit, right? That's part of the thing. And so you can always oh, just siphon sure. off a piece of that, right? Exactly. You know, you just say, hey, look, if it's $20 here, if it's $50 here, each paycheck, and I know it's a lot of money, but as you said, if you're putting in these t- in these tax-deferred vehicles, right? Yeah, that for growth. You can, yeah. And
2: you believe in the future. Look, if I, I always say to people, if I'm wrong about keep investing in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, um, if I'm wrong and your Roth IRA is worth nothing, your index fund or your growth fund is worth nothing, we got a lot more problems in America than just that. So I believe in the future of this country. I believe we'll get on course long-term to have economic growth, and do the right things. And you might as well make a bet on this because you're going to retire here. Your kids are going to go to college here. So you have to be invested here sensibly.
1: Yeah. So from that, that perspective, you mentioned the credit card. Um, and, and in your book, you, you talk specifically about the prevalence of student loan debt and how okay. much that, that, that really is a burden. And we've seen that as in changing household formation over the years. We've seen it you know, impact just spending and, and behavior. Um, so it's a different cycle Um, Walk us through where you see the problem. I know you you lay out the challenges there. Um, Is it something that we have to change institutionally? Or or how do we deal with with this big burden that we're we're sallying on young people? Okay, well, I've
2: been talking about this for years. It started out with the ego of, my kid has to go out of state to the best school when there was a good school nearby, or even a community college where you could save a fortune. I mean, I've written columns about that eight, nine years ago. Um, but today, the sad, f- how can I say this, uh, American families and students are being screwed by the federal government. Now mm-hmm. I, I caught your attention. You can say that. You but say let that. me point this out. As we talk here today, the federal government borrows at a rate of roughly 1.7 to 1.75% for a 10, for 10 years. For 10 yeah. years. Uh, student loans were originally, believe it or not, expected to be repaid in 10 years. The student loan rate is triple that, and the student loan rate never changes. So people who took, I mean, it, the, it changes for new loans this year. It's still four times, twice at least, the rate at which you borrow, uh, the federal government borrows. But anybody who took out a loan 8, 9, 10 years ago, or 12 years ago and is still paying it off. They have rates at 8, 9, 10, 11%. So, I don't agree with the idea that we should just do away with student loans, wipe the slate clean because that's an insult to everybody who worked down in the past, worked hard in the past to pay down their sure. loans. Yeah. But what I do think the government has to do are two things. Number one, adjust the rate on outstanding student loan balances every 6 months to be 50 basis points above the 10-year treasury that would cut a huge amount of the burden off of people who are still repaying mm-hmm. and the second thing is the growth now up to 1.6 trillion in these loans has happened ever since the federal government took really took over the basic loan Situation, and no longer. There's not only any requirement that you have to prove uh, creditworthiness, of course, to get a federal student loan, but the colleges and the institutions that distribute the loans. Remember, the government doesn't send you a check; mm-hmm. they, they they send it through your college. They're never held accountable for graduation, for graduation, for, yeah, right, and right. for or, and for for the for rate at which people right. get yeah. jobs right. after graduating. Right. So, of course, if you get free money, no wonder college tuition's going up. The, the universities know they'll get the money from the student loans. And what the heck, whatever happens to the kids happens to the kids. So we have to make schools accountable. We have to adjust the rates. And why this should be a political football when it's just an obvious fact that student loans are destroying America because, a couple of facts, millennials can't buy homes. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've come up to me they're they're making $800 monthly payments nobody told them and it's and that's
1: not the mortgage payment or rent payment and that guess, is the student loan payment wait, and yes. you can
2: never really default on a student loan mm-hmm. so we now have the federal government accessing benefits payments to seniors who went back to school or took out plus parent plus loans and and they're retirees and with Social Security only, and they're docking Social Security checks. The reason you can make these loans and even the private student loans can get made is because the lenders can't lose. Mm-hmm. And they make a lot of interest. That's insane. So, the, by the way, the answer is if you're, you're a wealthy trader, I hope you're a wealthy trader every day of your life. As long as it goes. Open a 529 college savings plan. Go to savingforcollege.com. Pick one of the ones with the top star rating. Maybe your state gives a tax deduction for your contribution. Put the maximum amount of money in there every year. You and your spouse could each give $15,000 into a 529 Mm -hmm. college savings plan. Fill it up. You can be invested conservatively, aggressively, age-based. Start now. Don't do the prepaid tuition plans, especially if you live in Illinois, because the state's going to go broke and default.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, um, my family um, uh, on my wife's side has some, um, uh, so they're in Texas, and so we got in one of those plans for one of their children where it was like guaranteed tuition. And after the second year, they stopped offering the plan because it was oversubscribed. It was such a great deal, and you have guaranteed tuition anywhere in any of the universities in Texas. Where, where they're living and it also has cash out value at the time of however you've invested it when those kids go to school so and they I mean, weren't
2: good enough investors to beat the rate of rising right. tuition inflation ex- exactly and so then they figured it out early yeah, illinois did
1: i've i've always said as a as a fixed income investor i wish that i could just invest in college tuition because it guarantees <laughs> to go between five to seven percent per annum indefinitely and it never seems to change guess
2: what you know that's a market to And you take a look at the numbers because this is not a prediction. I see it starting to happen. Schools are not filling their enrollment quotas. Enough parents are saying, I can't do this. Mm -hmm. I got three kids, I can't do it. Uh, They're demanding more financial aid from the schools, free grants and work Mm -hmm. study programs from the schools. They, there's not this rush, except for the few parents in LA who had to you know, cheat their way in uh, <laughs> with their- Yeah, I didn't know college home. was
1: gonna cost $5 million. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. but
2: basically, I think you're starting to see the signs of that market rolling over. I'm not saying tuition won't continue to climb, especially at state schools, which have budget problems. Yeah. But still, I think people are waking up to the fact that they could spend two years at home in a community college, mm-hmm. live at home. I know you don't want your kids home, they don't wanna be there, but think of the money you'll save so they can graduate from a great school because they can transfer after their sophomore year
1: so um we have pretty good local community colleges where i live too Mm -hmm. and they have high transfer rates into the local universities in los angeles and you know there's nothing wrong with um with getting especially you know you're 19 years old you're out of high school if you don't don't know exactly what you're trying to do. You're taking basic education classes, and you have good professors locally that are at the community colleges, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah. And, and, but I want to say one more thing to you, all of you who are parents out there. Look, part of it is expectations. Way back when, I wanted to go to Radcliffe Harvard. My parents rolled their eyes. I remember my dad saying to me, you have two younger brothers. We can't afford that. They took me on a tour. I live in Chicago. They drove me to Ann Arbor. I went, oh my gosh, this is college. I applied early decision. It was fabulous. I think you owe it to your children not to let them go until senior year for you to turn to them and say, honey, we didn't save enough money and we have nothing for your brother. You need to start out early on in high school explaining to them what your family situation is, offering them rewards if they'll get great grades and go to community college, telling them they got to go online to scholarships.com, not in their senior year, but in their sophomore year to see what activities get free money scholarships, what essay contests and so forth. Make them be participants.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So the other thing that um, I read in your book was uh, the, the long-term health care problem and, and uh. how people are trying to figure that out And I, I don't want to depress you you put your head down again well we're talking about all the negatives here but I, I think it's no, important this because is, th- this is why mm. that we try to be investors it's you know some people think that it's just about building wealth and oh I want to you know sit as you sit on the vineyard sipping wine uh, in, in later years but a lot of it is just to achieve goals in life and be able to survive so let's talk about the this long-term care. Um, epidemic that we have here. And again, it's another thing, healthcare inflation and college tuition inflation are these two astronomical numbers that just, Absolutely. they don't seem to be subsiding. Yeah. How, how do you, how do you okay. give advice to people to think about this? I,
2: I, I've been talking about this for a long time too. I think, at, you know, now we're all aware of the student loan crisis. What we aren't really aware of is what's going to happen when the vast generation of baby boomers needs, I'm not talking about healthcare and Medicare now, that's its own set of problems but i'm talking about long-term custodial care which is help with basic activities like you know i know you don't want to think about this but i can't shower on my own i can't dress i need help getting to the feeding myself or getting that all that kind of care that used to be the dreaded nursing home thing don't put me in a nursing home promise me you never will look the biggest generation ever the boomers are getting to that stage where they're going to need that kind of care You need to know that Medicare does not pay for custodial care. It'll pay for skilled nursing if you've been in a hospital for three overnight uh, days. That they will pay for, but not custodial care. It costs over $120,000 a year and more, almost double that in major cities, to either have full-time live-in help, that's three shifts, or to be in assisted living might not be quite so much but if you need more more stepped-up care it's you're talking big numbers and if you have someone with Alzheimer's or lives longer with because they exercised when they were young which our generation knew how to do um, you're talking about five six seven years of that it could wipe out it will wipe out your parents savings and you need to think about how to plan for that now There's a whole big thing going around about, that's okay, you'll give away your assets and the states only look back five or seven years to see if you gave it away to your kids and then the state will take care of you. You don't wanna be in a Medicaid funded nursing home. You don't want your mom there, especially in the state of Illinois where they can't pay the help. So the only answer to this is either having a whole ton of money and why would you want to waste it on that? Or buying long-term care insurance. Now, quick, I know every, a lot of people's ears perked up because I've been saying buy long-term care insurance for a long time. And it was a great deal. And then all of a sudden, the insurance companies, you know the companies, okay, <laughs> that wrote the policies uh, looked around and said, oh my gosh, people don't drop these like life insurance policies. They're always getting new life insurance. They're saying we don't need it. The kids are out of the house now. People are using it. They're using long-term care. They want to move into assisted living because assisted living is pretty nice now if you, know, if you want to move. So they went, we really underpriced these policies because we use the life insurance mortality tables and morbidity tables. So all of a sudden, long-term care insurance policies took a big jump up. So let me just give me one minute. And if, if you come to TerrySavage.com, you can search these terms and read my columns or get the book, The Savage Truth on Money. The newest thing is combo policies, life and long-term care combined. So you take a hunk of money, and that's really for this audience. You take fifty dollars or $100,000 and buy a life insurance policy. The life insurance policy grows in value. You get a death benefit. But if you need long-term care, that money you put into the life policy leverages up for plenty of long-term care insurance. If you don't use the long-term care insurance, your heirs get a death benefit. If you do need long-term care, you could get plenty of coverage. And it's something you should all look into, you who have liquid cash, uh, to put into a life insurance policy. This is the kind of combo policy that you really need to look into.
1: Okay, so that means really good advice. So what what are the other things that you, you, when you're talking to people that you feel, um, aren't, aren't participating heavily. And you talk about this long-term care. Uh, you talk about paying down the debt. Well, what are some of the other things that are kind of basic necessities in your mind and, and your view that people are overlooking today?
2: I think the biggest thing people th- th- that harms people the most is they do not understand the word fiduciary. Now, this, the, this is a third edition of the Savage Truth on Money. There's a whole new chapter on it called fiduciary. Mm-hmm. Um, I've known this for a long time because I, w- early I would say, well, go to no load mutual funds, go to Fidelity and mm-hmm. Vanguard. I mean, I was a broker, I sold mutual funds, you know. I thought it was mm-hmm. a nice commission in those days, it was 8%. You split it with the firm, and it was a great sale. Um,
1: <laughs> now now we talk about index fees at a basis. Yeah, point. And now we're talking, <laughs> talking about, about free. free. Yeah, 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 yeah. We, we don't charge anything. Yes, exactly. Yeah, not, the, yeah, goodbye, TD
2: right, yeah. Ameritrade. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, there is no yeah. money in anything. Yeah. But there are still an army of salespeople out there who do sell commission-based products, and I know you don't believe it, and you listening to this, you're, you, I, by definition, you're pretty sophisticated about this. But there's this whole army of boomers who are retiring with, because of this bull market, Mildred we've got $482,000 in our 401k. And everybody says, roll it out. And there's an army of salespeople that wanna sell them products that lock them up, that load them up with commissions, that uh, they call themselves financial advisors, financial planners, financial this, that, and the other experts. So the big word is fiduciary. You need to find someone who agrees to take the fiduciary pledge, which is to put your interests first Mm -hmm. and, and to fully disclose all fees and commissions. Now, all of us sophisticated people know we cannot get this through Washington. The Labor Department tried to set a fiduciary standard for people dealing with IRAs or IRA uh, I know it's, it's amazing.
1: rollovers. It's amazing that... They that yeah.
2: sma- I mean, yeah. I'm not. I'm a free market person, right. but can't we protect the most vulnerable? They right. finally got to retirement. They have this lump sum of money, bad enough to worry about when will the bear market come. But to get ripped off into an annuity that locks you up and does it you know and you, you oh yeah you've got guarantees you won't lose but it's loaded up with fees doesn't give you the full market upside there's a million caveats and how they count it and basically you get some data withdraw based on what they say you can withdraw big chapter on annuities I have nothing against them I own some oh, I have a first-hand view of this I buy I eat my own cooking so I buy everything right so I think the big Challenge out there is to find people you can trust. I'm going to give you a plug for a website called Wealth WealthRamp, W-E-A-L-T-H-R-A-M-P.com. A wonderful Gail Pam Kruger started this. She carefully vets all certified financial planners who are fee only and fully disclose and agree to be fiduciaries. And it's not like a, a lending tree where you're going to get a million inquiries. There, it's a great online website, and you get matched up, and you can call them and see if you want to set an appointment. They could either be someone in your town or someone far away, but they're all fiduciaries. You're probably way ahead by a few hundred basis points a year just by dealing with someone who's not ripping you off from the start. Yeah. I think
3: one of the big questions I've always heard, and you've probably heard the same thing you know, from our, our peer group and you know, family friends, is how much do I need to have to consider retirement? Um, let's just say if we've, everyone's listened to the show. They mm-hmm. have the long-term health care comboed with the, the life insurance. Their the kids had the, what was it, 529 um, college, and they're already out of college. They're, they're self-sufficient there. How much do you really need going into retirement?
2: Well, I've been thinking about that for a long time because the book before The Savage Truth was called The Savage Number, How Much Money Do You Really Need to Retire? (laughs) This has been a long-term interest of mine. Look, I don't think you can do formulas. First of all, part of those things leave out the stuff you don't think about. Fidelity every year does a uh, cost of health care and retirement study, and a, a couple retiring this year at age, I think of 66, uh, would need to pay $285,000. i am talking about Medicare premiums, Part D, things that aren't covered by Medicare. So health care costs are going to rise. Yeah, you won't have dry cleaning expenses because does anyone wear a suit to work anymore? But still, you won't have commuting expenses, but you do want to travel. So there's A great website put up by the Employee Benefit Research Institute. It's sort of under construction now. But they have, I think, the best lifestyle calculator. Well, Let me back up. Uh, Have we got a minute here? You've got all the time you need. So part of how you decide how much you need is I'm going to turn back and ask you, how long are you going to live? Right?
3: Yeah. That's, uh, that's a looking. tough question. I'm looking right? at you. I'm already uh, past the midway point, I think, in my life. So let's just say another 40 years. If yeah, I'm lucky. You're,
2: you're way above average. Don't you think you're going to be average? And today's Social Security says it's somewhere around 79. This is an above, above average audience. Average? <laughs> if it could be, you know, 90. I look at the obits now. I'm old enough. <laughs> and I always like to see how people living to 93 or 97 or 98.
3: I'm a bit of an underachiever. so. Well, I'm going to tell
2: you how you can make an educated guess about that. Because that's the first key component of figuring out how much you're going to need. Okay. Here's a website you have to go to living to 100.com living l-i-v-i-n-g-t-o and then the number 100.com and just go take the quiz they don't want to know who you are it's very private and you take the quiz like how old are you now how old were are your parents or were they when they passed on your siblings and um and a bunch of lifestyle questions like how often do you exercise do you drink six glasses of water a day do you always wear your seat belt do you floss your teeth? That's really important. I, I spoke before a group of dentists once and I said that, and they nodded because I found out afterwards they were so happy I mentioned it. Because if you don't floss your teeth, you get a gum infection, they go straight to your heart and you die. So, floss your teeth. That's my other financial advice. So, you, you go to Living first. to 100.
1: I had no idea. That's and you great. fill out
2: all these questions. Okay, yeah. seriously. Yeah. And you click. And it tells you your estimated longevity. So the first time I did it was back when I was writing that how, how much do I, a Savage Number book, and it said 104. And I thought, oh my God, none of my plans count on me living to be 104. And then I thought to myself, I better go back and be a little more honest about the exercise and the green vegetables and so forth. You know, and I redid it and then I, I got 96. Well, you know, I'm now I'm knocking on wood, that would be nice. So go to livingto100.com. That's the first question, because here's a great online calculator for figuring out, given where you are right now, how much you might need. The Employee Benefit Research Institute has a website called choosetosave.org, C-H-O-O-S-E-T-O-S-A-V-E.org. And when you get there, you wanna click on something called the Ballpark Estimate. Uh, it's under their calculators. Click on the ballpark estimate. This one is going to take you a little time to figure out how old you are, what your salary is, what you project inflation to be. I mean, 3% is historic averages. Mm -hmm. We've been below it, but sorry, Fed, we might get, if you keep printing, maybe we're going to get above it again. (laughs) Um, How much you have saved now, your percentage savings, what you think you're you're, – your salary increases might average over your lifetime if, that, if you're on a salary. How long you think you're gonna live? Well, you now have the number from, from livingto100.com and, and a whole bunch of things like that. And then you click and it will automatically tell you, hey, Sam, you have gotta be saving another $3,000 a month or you're gonna be eating dog food. Oh, it also puts in what do you estimate your investment returns will be, you know, so uh, you're smart people, you can all figure that out over the long run. Or it will say, Don't extrapolate
1: 2019's returns. That's just, don't <laughs> yeah, exactly. put that as your Don't estimator. get that
2: 25, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 28% on the S&P 500. You're not going to get that every year. So the interesting thing is, Every financial service, I mean, Fidelity, Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, they all have a calculator. I think that the choosetosave.org one is probably the most sophisticated. Most of them don't have more than five or six questions. They just want to get you into perspective. But you really want to go doing some numbers, that's where I'd start. But it's important to start anywhere because you just can't put a bag over your head and say, I don't know, I don't think I'm going to make it very far.
1: I know we spend so much time talking about asset allocation and how to move and <clears> try <throat> to be tactical in markets. But, you know, uh, some of the best advice out there is what you're giving. It's just you have to start, right? Exactly. And uh, we heard that from a client when we, when we first started doubling a couple years ago. Um, well, it was a couple years in. And they were saying, we're going to be a large client of yours. And, you know, this is what we're doing. It was a foundation. And they said, but look, we got to start. And I thought that was just like really interesting advice to hear from a sophisticated investor. It's like, we're not trying to allocate everything today. We just need to start. We gotta get to know you. Here's some money. We're gonna start, right? And I think it's just great advice to people is that it's the plan. How much time do you spend researching the new iPhone or you know a new television <laughs> and these purchases you make and the little basic things that can help you be a consumer over the long run, we we ignore them. And I, I think what I wanna wrap up here too is what can we do to be better educated? What what, what do we do <laughs> to be better educated about finance? Because it's one of those things you're not taught in high school. Um, you're not really taught unless you become a business major. You're not taught it in college. So h- how do we become better educated? What do we? I mean, you're doing great work out there by just you know. Get it in front of people. You well, have a do big me a favor presence. and Hold promo up the, book. the book,
2: "The Savage Truth on Money." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can get it on Amazon.com yeah. or go to TerrySavage.com. There's a link there. But look, I recognize. First of all, we have a whole generation that's never even physically held a book. I get that. <laughs> I, I spoke. Wait, it. where do you touch it? Smooth yes, exactly, yeah. Like the Watch phone dialing so thing, right? Yeah. But I read it all into Audible version. Okay. So, okay, so you can listen to it in the car. But information is available. This is a crisis of will. I I will tell you that the most valuable commodity you have if you're in your 20s or 30s is not your knowledge about which stocks or even your choice of which fund. Before I knew about Dubline, all I just said was S&P 500 index fund, it's cheap, you can do it, it's just the market. You don't Mm -hmm. have to beat it, just be there. The most valuable commodity is not the stock you pick, It's not the asset allocation, although we all know that's tremendously important. It's not that you didn't get Netflix five years ago or Amazon eight years ago or whatever it is. The most valuable commodity you have is time. Ask any, quote, grown-up. Ask, okay, boomer, what they (laughs) wish they had more of. And although some will say money, most of them will say, I wish I had known this in my 20s and 30s. I wish I hadn't been scared out when the market crashed back then and back then and back then and even in 2008. 2008, I was sitting on every TV, radio show, pretty ubiquitous here in Chicago, saying, don't sell now, don't catch a falling knife, mm-hmm. this is the wrong time, don't panic. And of course, the market got down to 6,700 just in the, a decade ago, you know. Yeah. Time works wonders. So if you can start now, even though it's not a lot of money, or again, knowing this is an audience that really tunes in because they're plugged into the market, go find a young person. You've already started this with your kids, fine. Go find some young person. Anywhere. If you're coaching baseball in high school or something, mm-hmm. I. I really think that the best gift we can give our kids is an understanding of how much financial responsibility will be upon them and how relatively easy it would be if they're working to open a Roth IRA, have the money taken out automatically. Mm -hmm. If you don't see it, you won't spend it. Mm -hmm. The corollary being, as you posted, cash flows easiest down the drain. So have the money set aside automatically. You don't have to get rich overnight. You don't even have to get very, very wealthy but at least you won't be impoverished. Look at the homeless in our country. Mm. We cannot have that happen. And the other thing I wanna say is, we, because we haven't paid enough attention to those who aren't participating, I'm very sad to say, and I'm, I'm, I'm always an optimist, but that our system is at risk. So if you're smart enough to listen to podcasts like this, we all need to go out and teach the younger generation the true value of the free enterprise system. Let them know that the last two socialist experiments, Russia and Cuba, the Soviet Union, I mean, and Cuba, ended with people waiting in line hours for meat or a chicken or milk. Let them know that the free enterprise system creates wealth and opportunity. And then let's make sure that before it's forced upon us and ripped out of our hands, we do all the right things for our planet and our people, so that we can retain the system that's made us all so successful. That's a savage truth.
1: That is the best way to end this show. Uh, Terry, that was awesome. Um, you know, I, I appreciate all the work you're doing, what you're out there just trying to educate people and teach. And, um, you know, we really appreciate the time for you coming on the show today. So thank you so much. However, we can't Oops. let you leave. Oh without, no! I, I use it all going. the time. I can't no, do that. Wait, nope. Uh, Sam oh, has a favorite part Sam, of the show. I and, knew you, you were know, holding back. And Sam. look at okay. you—can see it in his eye. He's ready, so he's going to introduce you to Sherman Says, and we're going to get the real savage truth okay. from Sam. So, Sam, sorry with. to
3: do this to you, Terry, but uh, my favorite segment of the show is Sherman Says. Uh, rules of <laughs> Says. Uh, rules of the road is that I will be offering up a prompt and alternating it uh, between you and uh, Jeffrey here, and to which you will provide a top-of-mind response. And I will start out with Jeff Sherman, so he can provide the example first with consumer defaults. Marginally rising.
2: Oh, no, wrong, Jeff. <laughs>
3: Marginally.
1: Next headline
2: story. <laughs> Next headline story. <laughs> what? That's my response. That's it.
3: U.S. personal savings rate.
2: It's on life support. (laughs) Got to get it up. But, of course, that will slow down the economy and consumer spending, by the way, so I understand it's a two-edged sword. all
3: interconnected, right? Yeah. Yield curve. Flat. U.S. economic recession.
2: For sure there will be one. I have no idea when. And when it comes, a lot of people will be very vulnerable and a lot of corporations who have investment grade. Oh, that's Jeffrey's line. You all know that. (laughs) I I learned that from him. (laughs) Triple (laughs) B-rated debt that gets downgraded. Oh, my Uh, God.
3: Back to you, Sherman, with consumer spending. Lifeblood of the economy. Consumer debt.
2: (sighs) Poison in the economy.
3: (laughs) 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 Wage inflation.
1: I always say this. So now here we go off of the one word. I always say it's wage inflation if you're an employer, but if you're a laborer Shit. and a worker, it's called Doesn't wage do. growth.
0: You go. So you know what?
1: Um, I'm very impressed to see the wage growth that it's been. It's been more uh, broadly <laughs> participated in. Um, and you're seeing that the lower end of the worker has had better wage growth as of late. So I'm not calling it inflation. I'm calling it growth. We need the lifeblood. And that is the good thing for the economy. So you go, consumer. There we go. Yeah, you go, worker, I should <laughs> say. Earn <laughs> the money. Listen to Terry. Save a little bit of it. And uh, you can still buy some things through time. That was not a one-word answer. That wasn't. I
3: was, I uh, it was It's acceptable. It's right. acceptable, <laughs> <You're> though. <right. laughs> I'll be good. Modern monetary theory.
2: Another round round of BS. Look, (laughs) the Fed's printing. I don't care what you call it. I say the word printing because it's easier for people to understand Mm -hmm. that the government's borrowing more. Nobody mentioned we borrowed another trillion dollars more to our national debt. Who's going to buy that? Well, a lot of people around the world at these interest rates because it's better than being negative. But eventually in a crisis, it will be the Fed. And how will they pay for it? With newly, quote, printed money, uh, credit in the system. And I don't care how you measure it. You add more money, more liquidity, more credit, or you do, oh, we'll we'll solve the repo problem. We're going to only just do this liquidity. And you've got too much money in the economy. And that is just a fact.
3: Kind of a counterpoint to that is uh, government debt, U.S. (laughs) government debt, let's say. (laughs)
1: Unstoppable. Unstoppable. I mean, it's just uh, it's on a it's on a, it's on a tear, yeah. And as you just mentioned, the north of a trillion dollars last year. And I just said, like, if we're gonna do modern monetary theory, let's do it at the extreme. Let's just stop paying taxes. Let's just see how it really works <laughs> yeah, if you I really want print you the to. Money. Yeah. Yeah, instead of printing the money, let right. just stop collecting the money. You know, like if we're gonna print it, let's print it. So. Um, you know, if you're out there, let's just let's just all stop paying taxes then.
2: Let me play yeah. off that. I, yeah. oh, this happened yesterday in the lunch, and Jeffrey was talking about it. I said, this reminds me of when my family, when we were all young, played Monopoly. My younger brother was so impatient. He'd say, this game is too slow. I'm giving everybody a couple more $500 bills. I would carefully save a few hundred dollar bills under the board so I could buy Boardwalk. <laughs> yeah. well, and, and if the price floats, what good does my savings do if you add money?
0: We've got to teach kids that, Monopoly. That's a, that's a
1: great, great yeah. metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> so I like that. So
3: anyway. All right, and the last one goes to you, Terry, with wealth distribution.
2: What's your angle on that? Wealth distribution. I would like wealth to be increasing and distributed more broadly, by which I mean people get opportunities to become wealthy. And in most cases, I think that requires the government stepping out of the way, except when it comes to our natural resources or subsidizing the wrong things. Mm. But if, you're, if the word you really meant to say was wealth redistribution, okay, if yeah. that was what you were talking about, I think that will be the end of our free enterprise system. No, you know, the government's already redistributing our wealth, mm-hmm. uh, but they do it so secretly, either not now, but by the inflation tax of creating things. We saw that in the 70s, creating money. Um, but if that becomes a political mantra, wealth redistribution, mm-hmm. the smartest and brightest people will move. Think about all the people being taxed in New York, Illinois, moving to Florida. My, the president of the United States is moving to Florida to save on taxes. Oh, okay. but he said he wasn't
1: going to. You know, no. He, he uh, said that yeah, he's I, impacted no, no, I'm sorry, by that. Mean, you, know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the,
0: yeah.
2: you know, smart money knows where to move. Right. And people don't work to have the top skimmed off. They work for an after-tax return. And America will not be the beacon of opportunity it is if we practice a policy of wealth redistribution. What we should be practicing is a po- policies that lead to wealth opportunity.
1: Wealth accumulation. So. Yes. All right. Well, Terry, thank you so much. Thank you for participating. I know that was a challenge for you, but you you did it very, very well. So thank you so much. Um, we can go to your website to get a hold of you, www.terrysavage.com, T-E-R-R-Y-S-A-V-A-G-E. T-E-R-R-Y-S-A-V-A-G-E.com. Terry you weekly can, Where columns? else can we get uh, your weekly columns? Where else can well, they're they syndicated see
2: around the country, but they get posted at terrysavage.com. There's yes. a blog. Okay. So if you want to ask personal finance questions, I stay up late at night just answering those. You'll see videos of me on TV. Yeah, I know it's basic for all of you sophisticates, but again, I urge you, Spread this information. We cannot have a generation of illiterate young people, even your smart kids, illiterate about personal finances. We need to educate the world.
1: Well, you're doing it one step at a time. I'm trying. You can get the book, Savage Truth on Money. You can go back to the Savage Truth of the Number. Um, You can read all of your stuff at terrysavage.com. And thanks again. So you can check our podcast out at the Double Line website. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, uh, Google Play, Spotify, a bunch of other things I've never heard of. Um, continue to watch us on youtube.com backslash Double Line Capital. You can see the interview live with Terry. Well, it'll be recorded by that point, but what we did today. Um, and you can catch all of us and look forward to the next episode with Sam and me going forward. Thanks again, Terry. Thank you. Thank okay, you, Terry. Bye-bye.
0: presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the re- express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefor, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any double-line entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any double-line entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 Double Line Capital